Hey, welcome to Access. John here. On Easter Sunday, we're going to gather together at 7 a.m. at the Slaughter's Farm and have a worship service commemorating the resurrection of our risen Lord, and we're also going to eat breakfast shortly following. But we will also be meeting at the church at 11 a.m. to wrap up our study on the Holy Spirit. We hope that you'll join us. Today, I want to continue our study on the Holy Spirit by addressing some of the fears that we might have about Him. Let's face it, God can be pretty terrifying. Isn't this certainly true about the Holy Spirit? Well, today's message is entitled, I Ain't Afraid of No Ghost. Well, last week, whenever I concluded our Sunday morning service, I mentioned that whenever I was in eighth grade, I had a terrible fear of something. And if you were there, you probably remember what I was talking about. Um, I, I was terrified of girls. And I think this is common among teenagers. Um, if it wasn't, then why do almost all 8th grade dances look the same? You know what I mean? Like, guys on one side, girls on the other, nobody's talking to each other. I think it's common. But I was terrified of girls. Um, not that I didn't want to be around them, far from it. I, I wanted to be around them. In fact, I admired them and I studied them. I even worshipped them. Um, I, I plastered posters of women all over my walls. You know what? Um, I remember specifically, I, I was in love with the pink Power Ranger. I was convinced that somewhere, somehow, we were going to meet and we were going to be married. The funny part is, is that even though I was terrified of girls, I had girls that I had agreed to go steady with. My way of quote, going steady wasn't necessarily spending time with them um, or talking to them. I, I just told my friends we were going out. Because at least in my mind, we were in a relationship. You know, women were a complete and total mystery to me. And so much so, I spent most of my grade school years studying them from afar. Now, I wish I could tell you that after nine years of marriage, I was closer to understanding women. But the truth is, I don't think I will fully ever understand a woman. However, after nine years of marriage, I can tell you that one of the most valuable things that I possess is the relationship that I have with my wife. She is one of the greatest treasures in my life. And although my worship in women was misplaced, it taught me a valuable lesson. It is possible to admire, study about, and even worship something or someone and not have a genuine relationship with them, to not really know them. When God looked at Adam's situation in the garden, he said, It is not good that man should dwell alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. That was Genesis 2.18. So if a man and a woman are always intended to have a deep, meaningful relationship with each other through the bonds of marriage, why was I so afraid? Um, I was afraid of what life would be like with my future spouse. And I always, even though I had this fear, I always had a deep hunger to be in a relationship with her. The same could be said with our relationship to the Holy Spirit. You see, in churches today, many of us have agreed to, quote, go steady with God, but we seldom ever talk to or spend time with Him. And we can even brag about how we belong to each other, to all our friends, but without ever interacting with the Holy Spirit, it's an empty gesture, right? We've been created to experience life with the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that we find that when we open up to our relationship with the Holy Spirit, that our relationship with Him will be one of the greatest treasures in our life. We should never just admire Him and worship Him and study Him from a distance. We should enjoy fellowship with Him in all the activities of life, and we should walk through life together as one flesh. 
Now, until we surrender the Holy Spirit's presence and invite him into our lives, we are simply living powerless, delusional Christian lives. It's difficult, I think, because we put God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit up on a pedestal, right? And rightly so. Whenever someone is on a pedestal, we think in our minds, you're way up there, I'm way down here. How could I ever hope to have a relationship with you? But listen, this is the reason why Jesus came to earth. He got off of his pedestal where he belonged, and he became like us. Now, last week, we, we, we read how he promised that when he returned to his pedestal, that he would send the counselor, the Holy Spirit, to guide us to all truth. And yes, it is a bizarre relationship. This is God, but he also desires a close love relationship with me. It's bizarre, but it is also something to be celebrated, not feared. But that is easier said than done. Perhaps the reason I feared girls so much is because of my own insecurity. You know, are they going to think my nose is too big? Do they think my my voice sounds weird? I mean, uh, I have now lost my hair, so I mean, that would be even more insecurity. But there's nothing worse in my mind than insecurity because it causes you to question so many things. And so many people live in fear because they are uncertain about what's going to come next. Thus, the greatest fear man has come to know, the fear of uncertainty. Many anxieties stem from this single overarching fear. For example, um, we can fear skydiving because we're uncertain that the parachute will open. We can fear the deep end of a pool because we're uncertain if we're going to be able to keep our head above water. We can even fear death because it is a mystery to, me, to, to us. There's a lot that is uncertain. Now We studied last week how Jesus said it was for our good that the Holy Spirit would come. Because of this truth and because of who Jesus is, it is an incredible comfort to us. We don't have to fear the Holy Spirit, even though there is a lot of uncertainties about him. God never wanted to be an obscure, far-off mystery to us. He works despite our insecurity because he wants to be known and to know. Now, I just want to point this out. When Moses received the law or the Torah from God on Mount Sinai, and he gave it to the people, that day is remembered as Shavat, which means oaths. Now, um, in the Jewish faith, they worship or they worship God by observing Shavat and um that was the day that they consider that God made an oath. The day that he swore eternal devotion to us. The day that he became our God and the day that we became his people. I say we, meaning Jews, not me because I'm a Gentile. But Jews celebrate this day because it was the origin of the Jewish faith. Now what you might not know is that it was the 50th day after the Passover that Moses received this law. And while they have roots all the way back to Abraham, it wasn't until they received this law written on tablets that God made this oath and the Jewish religion started. Consequently, Pentecost, or as a, uh, as a, Greek, as a Greek word um, from Greek-speaking Jews, it, it's used to commemorate this very same day. The Passover celebrations begins with a commemoration of the Festival of Weeks. So when you take the Passover, the day after Passover begins this Festival of Weeks. Seven weeks to be specific. Or if you want to sound nifty, seven sevens, which translates to 49. So 49 days after Passover is the 50th day, the day the Grecian Jews knew as 
Pentecost. Again, Pentecost means 50. Now, it was no accident that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost instead of any other day. In the book of Acts, we see Jesus eating with his disciples, and he gave them this command in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 4. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father that he has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, before studying about the Passover and the, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Festival of Weeks, I thought that this few days that Jesus referred to was just an obscure number of days. Well, he'll come eventually. But as um, we studied about the Passover a couple weeks ago, God is very, very precise in what he did. When he does something, he does it intentionally. Christ's coming was not accidental, nor was the Holy Spirit's coming. God's timing is always perfect, and I want to show this to you. Jesus tells his disciples to wait, quote, a few days. Well, just how many days was this? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, says, After his suffering, he, meaning Jesus, showed himself to these men, talking about the disciples, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. Remember, because the day after Passover is always the Sabbath. And they had to rush him into the tomb because the Sabbath was coming. And and so uh, they put him in the tomb on the day of Passover. Three days after Jesus was crucified, he was resurrected from the dead. For 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, he revealed himself to his disciples so 40 days, 42 days had passed since the Passover because you subtract one because that one was actually uh, the, the, you know, the Passover. Jesus was crucified on the Passover, and then three days later, he rose from the dead, and then 40 days have passed. So 42 days have passed since the Passover, and Jesus ascended into heaven, promising his disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit. We've actually seen 43 days, if that makes more sense to you. One week later or seven days after the 43 days, the Holy Spirit arrives as promised. Now, I know that was kind of confusing. I was throwing a lot of numbers there, but basically let me break it down to you like this. Moses received the law on stone tablets on Shavat. That's what they commemorate as Shavat, which means oaths, right? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I have made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead each of them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So he's saying this is the old covenant, and this is the new covenant. See, before you had it on tablets of stone, now I'm going to write it on your hearts. So on the day of Shavuot, or if you're a Grecian Jew, the day of Pentecost, God fulfilled his covenant. He made a new oath with his people and wrote his law on the people's hearts when they received the Holy Spirit. The exact same day that Jews celebrated the origin of their religion is the exact same day that Christians received the Holy Spirit and the church was started. So Acts chapter 2, I want to read this passage for you. Uh, We're going to stop um, at, at verse 
13. So chapter 2, verse 1 through 13 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Why? Because Jesus told them to. Suddenly a sound of the blo- like a blowing of the violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house that they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's an important word, enabled. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not each one of these men speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears in his own native language? Perithians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia, excuse me, Phrygia and Pampila, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. This is what they said. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said, Well, they've had too much wine. Now, we read in this passage that the disciples that followed Jesus' instructions, they gathered together, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit tears through the building like a violent wind, and these disciples witnessed what seemed like tongues of fire separating and resting on each one of them. And when this happened, the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak different languages. Now notice it says in verse 6 that a crowd was there. Why? Because this was Shabbat. This was the celebration that the Jews kept commemorating when the law was given to them by God. The crowd gathered around them from all parts of the known world. After being separated by captivity, the Jews were allowed to come back just for this celebration and they had to go back where they came from. And the disciples began to testify to them. Now, what is it you think that they were saying? Do you think they were shouting, I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia? No, Scripture tells us that they were declaring the wonders of God in other people's languages. They were testifying that Jesus is alive and that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit so that this message could be shared with them. However, in in verse 14, we see a common response, excuse me, 13, we see a common response to the Holy Spirit by the world that doesn't understand him. him. They said, yeah, these people are just drunk. So if we were to translate that into churchianity, we might say, ah, well, they're just acting too charismatically. But listen to what Peter says in verses 14 through 15. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Now that right there is a very terrifying thing, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Fellow Jews, he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. Now, Peter, the man who had been an unstable leader throughout Jesus' ministry, is now filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's able to get up and speak with boldness. And he tells him, listen, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Because of the Holy Spirit, this uneducated man who has lived a simple life, gets up and starts explaining what the prophets have said about Jesus as if he studied the Old Testament his entire life. 
He reminds them about the prophet Joel and the prophecies that are relating to the Holy Spirit and Christ. And he goes on in Luke, uh, or sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He said, you, you were there, you saw it. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Now, I've heard people accuse the disciples of starting a religion after Jesus was killed to keep this legacy continuing. I mean, let's keep this bandwagon going. But I want to point out that there are countless evidences that unbelievers have uncovered regarding the resurrection of Christ. If you're interested in what these evidences are, I would strongly recommend The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was a former atheist that uncovered the truths about Jesus and um, his resurrection and ended up actually converting. Another one is Josh McDowell. I encourage you to go read his uh, book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's very good. Now, despite all the evidence, this is what it comes down to, though. Either you believe or you don't. Peter got up and he boldly spoke to a bunch of people that could very likely have corrected his education, um, that uh, would have stoned him to death had the Holy Spirit not intervened. Talk about a precarious situation. Think about what he said to these men and women. He said, you were given Christ, and you, along with evil men, you killed him. Peter didn't shy away. He didn't shy away from the resurrection. He got up and he spoke with boldness and he told them something happened that was impossible. He told them it was impossible not for him to be raised from the dead, but for death to keep his hold on him. Now keep in mind, Jesus had already ascended into heaven at this point. Wouldn't you, if you had control over this situation, had Jesus walk up on stage and at this point and say, Hey guys, hey, remember me? Remember you tried to kill me and here I am? Wouldn't that made more of an impact on people, don't you think? Well, believe it or not, I've come to discover that the answer to that question is no. The evidence that Jesus not only was who he says he was, but that he rose from the dead is evident. It is here. We have it. And people take that evidence and they look at it and they either accept it or they reject it. They believe or they don't. Do you believe? If so, why? I want to tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart. You have been enabled to believe. And that was what was going on in this passage of Scripture. That's how Peter got up and spoke. The Holy Spirit enabled him to speak, and he enabled people to hear. And people got saved. And then just to drive my point home, I want to read this last part of this passage, uh, verses 36 through 41. Listen to this. It says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all who, whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those, this is what it says in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, um, I want to point out some things about this, and what I'm about to tell you, I I hope can be a tremendous encouragement to you and not confuse you. I have been going to church for somewhere around 30 years. I'm 32. I spent a couple years away, uh, running away from the Lord, but for 30 years, I have listened to sermons. For 10 years, I've preached sermons. Ever since I was eight eight days old, I grew up in church. Um, I went to Sunday school. I've sat through countless Bible studies, and I've even studied the Bible on my own for 30 years. Yet God is still teaching me new things about himself. Just the other day as I was preparing for this message, God gave me some buried treasure regarding the Holy Spirit. I was digging and digging and digging, and he gave me something pretty incredible. As I studied about this passage, God reminded me of something that I read in Exodus. Did you know that on the day of Shavuot, when Moses received the law and gave it to his people, he was gone a total of 40 days? On the 40th day, the day of Shavuot, he returned with the law and gave it to the people. Only he saw something that infuriated him. The day that Moses returned with the law written on stone tablets, the people were worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses goes down and confronts his brother-in-law and he says, Aaron, what happened? And Aaron tells him, well, you know, these people are evil and they made me do it. So Moses looked around and there were people just running everywhere. And it says that the Bible says they were completely out of control. Now, one translation uh, of scripture says that they were running around naked. Now, Baal, the golden calf, um, was a symbol of fertility. So very likely these people were not only guilty of running around naked, they were guilty of sexual immorality. Now, I'm just picturing something between a Mardi Gras and a Trump protest rally. Everybody's out of control, and stuff's getting destroyed, and people yells out to the Levites. He says, if you're with God, then come to me. And so several of these Levite men pile around Moses, and he said to them, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go put on your swords, and I want, to cut, I want you to cut down everyone that you see doing this. He tells them, cut down your own family members, friends, neighbors, cut them down. Listen to this, Exodus chapter 32, verse 27. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day, about 3,000 people died. Consequently, do you remember how many people were saved when Peter got up and preached filled with the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. On the same day Jews celebrated the law being received... 3,000 people were cut down. And on the very same day that the Holy Spirit was received, 3,000 people were saved. Now, I wish I could tell you that I fully understand the significance of this number, but the truth is I cannot. More so, I know that people have become obsessed with the significance of numbers in the Bible. And while it's interesting, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, is that God often uses people for an object lesson. Is it a coincidence that on the day the law was received that 3,000 were killed? And on the day that the Spirit was received that 3,000 were saved? I wouldn't think so if I were you. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe everything happens for a reason. The law does not save us. 
The law condemns us. It kills us. And we aren't saved by the law. We aren't saved by works. We are saved by grace. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.3. He says, You show that you are the letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts, just as God promised. And in verse 6, he says, He has made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, talking about the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law of Moses took 3,000 lives that day. But the Holy Spirit, when he came, he came, saved 3,000 lives. This was a visual reminder that we must trust in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. By grace, not by works. Did you know that God once commanded Isaiah to walk around for three years without clothing? For three years. Isaiah 20, chapter, chapter 20, verses 3 through 4 says, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years, as a sign and portion against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away, striped, uh, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bare to Egypt's shame. God used Isaiah as an object lesson. Now, this is awesome and scary all at the same time. It's awesome because God chooses to reach people by using people. And in Exodus, he cut down 3,000. In Acts, he saves 3,000. He does this for a, a, a message. He's sending us a message. And it's awesome. But it's also scary because if that's what God did with them, what in the world is he planning to do with me? This isn't exactly your kindergarten Sunday school class material. I mean, this is scary stuff. Did you know that many people in churches today are afraid to rely on the Holy Spirit? Some are afraid to boldly pray for change and for freedom from sin because if nothing happens, then doesn't that mean that God failed? And a lot of times we can often try to cover for God. We, we ask for less. We expect less. We're satisfied with less because we're afraid to ask, ask for and expect more from God. And we even convince ourselves that we don't really want more anyway. And that we've had all the God that we could need or want. What a tragedy. You know, others ask, do I really even want the Holy Spirit? These aren't the people that are afraid God won't show up. These are the people that are afraid that God will. And, and if God does show up, does that mean that he's going to command me to go somewhere and do something that I really don't want to do? And go somewhere I don't really want to go and do something I don't want to do? What if the Holy Spirit prompts me to get up and speak as he did with Peter? Puts me in a life or death situation. This is why I hope this truth sinks in. Maybe we will not even fully understand it. Jesus said that it is for our good that the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit doesn't seek to hurt us. However, he does intend to make us more like Christ. And let's be truthful, sometimes that's very painful. But the truth is that it is for your good. If you're afraid of getting out in the Spirit of God, be honest with God. Tell Him about it and let Him work it out. I think that you'll find that one day, there will come a day, when you're not afraid to get out in the Spirit, you're afraid to get out without Him. Now, as I've said, we can worship God, study about Him from a distance, and even admire Him and still never have a genuine relationship with Him. I've lived in fear 
of the Holy Spirit for years. I mean, I, I did for years. And now that he resides in me and that I've spent time with him and I've learned to trust him, the Holy Spirit is the greatest treasure in my life. Now, I, I say this knowing that full well I might be labeled a charismatic by some, but I ain't afraid of no Holy Ghost. Some might say, fear of the Lord, to which I would respond, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, 1 John 4, 18. Now, I say this knowing that some will call me crazy, but I don't care. I love being in the presence of God. And when the Holy Spirit fills me and I feel the presence of God, it's unlike any other feeling in the world. And I have a hard time describing it. But it's, it's, it's kind of like when you get up before the sunrise and you anticipate it's coming. And when it hits you, it's that warmth that hits you in the chest and it completely washes over you. I remember feeling the presence of God on my wedding day. We did the traditional thing. You know, I went all day without seeing my wife and talking to her. And as I stood at the front waiting for her, I was anticipating her. And then the bridal party came. And then the flower girls. And then, then my beautiful bride walks in the room and she turns the corner and she looks at me. And my heart literally tried to leap out of my chest. And I felt the presence of God rest on me. It was more than that loving feeling that people feel during a wedding. It was the feeling of peace and joy that has a warm glow and it fills you completely. I felt it again when I felt when my son was born. I watched my wife go through 25 long hours of God's wrath through, through pains in childbirth. And finally, after 25 hours of hell, my son, Christian, was born. And when I saw him for the first time, I wept as God's warmth washed over me. It was God's way of affirming to me that he is the giver of good gifts. Now, often I stand in worship with my hands lifted high and tears come to my eyes because the Holy Spirit ignites in me and I connect with God. And in that moment, I feel the incredible warmth that is both light and heavy at the same time. And I know that I have God's attention and he has mine. Again, it's difficult to explain, but if you had God's presence wash over you through the Holy Spirit, you know exactly what I'm describing because you have felt him too. Now, what I want to ask is a question to all who might be afraid or feeling like, you know, you know, John, you're getting way too out there. Why is what I just described to you wrong? If that's too charismatic, then I don't want to be traditional. And if that's too traditional, I don't want to be too charismatic. All I want to do is be in his presence. Even though I know he's going to, I don't ever want those moments to end. If you're afraid... It's because you're admiring and studying about and even worshiping God from a distance. But I tell you, there is a better way. As you learn to trust the Lord, you will see that everything he has done is for your good and for his glory. You and I, we will never completely understand the Holy Spirit. But that's what's so exhilarating about him. That shouldn't keep us paralyzed in fear. It should ignite our hearts that we want to know God. And there's always more. Take some time and to you know, just examine some fears that you might have about the Holy Spirit. It may take some time to pinpoint what exactly those fears are. But I believe that when you identify them, 
and you don't hide from them and you admit them first to yourself and then to God who already knows what your fears are. There will be a peace that washes over you because if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. I want to conclude today's message with a passage of scripture. I'm getting to where I'm doing that at habit, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 19 says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Surrender yourself over to God and invite Him to truly dwell within you, whatever that may mean. And go wherever He's going to take you. That's what I, I would tell you. There's no reason to call Ghostbusters. Lean into and trust the Holy Ghost. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.